The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. We have a special offer available to our podcast listeners. You can get 10% off the whole range of Routledge books. Just follow the link in the podcast description for more details. The interpretation of dreams is the royal road to a knowledge of the unconscious activities of the mind. So said Sigmund Freud. But over a century after Freud wrote this work, how much of our unconscious minds have we uncovered? Here to debate the relevance of Freud's work today is writer, academic and critic Shahada Bari. And when I read Freud, I get a kind of vertigo that I get with very, very particular thinkers where I feel like I'm reading something about myself that rings true. Philosopher and director of the Institute of Philosophy at the Institute of Advanced Studies in London, Barry C. Smith. That we keep secrets means that we could in principle recover them or we could in principle take them in. And professor of clinical psychology at the University of Liverpool, Richard Bentall. It seems to me that unconsciousness is the state that all of nature is in, or most of nature is in. The big problem is how are we ever conscious of anything? David Malone hosts. It goes back to Freud. Many people, I think, have become rather sceptical of Freud's claim that the unconscious desires control our lives. And yet, recent studies have shown that the conscious brain really only does use a tiny fraction of the brain. So what's the rest doing? Are there, in fact, hidden desires and secret thoughts driving our actions that we don't know about? And is our conscious brain really in full control? Are hidden desires and secret thoughts driving our actions? Or is our conscious brain fully in control? Shaida, would you start for us? What I really want to do is talk to you about Freud. And I really want to do justice to Freud because I think Freud does justice to us. Um, and I'll explain why. I mean, I'm not someone who's an absolute uh, diehard Freudian, um, and I kind of understand all of the anxieties about his, his scientism um, and you know, the sheer lunacy of some of his ideas. But at the same time, I'm really struck, you know, years of teaching Freud, that the, our modern apprehension of the psyche, and actually there is nothing more intimate than the way that we apprehend our own mind. That modern apprehension of the psyche is profoundly indebted to Freud's really speculative modeling um, of the brain, of, of, our, of our psychic lives. Um, and the unconscious is a huge part of it. And I want to encourage us to talk about the implications of the unconscious as Freud um, contours it for us. And Freud tells us that we are not known to ourselves. We are not known to ourselves. And for me, that means that he articulates a certain experience of alienation 
We know that we are at odds with other people. Um, we know that we are at odds with our environment often. But Freud is saying we are at odds with ourselves too. Um, that there's a certain discomfort or, or heart sickness about our experience of the world. If you know Hamlet, at the beginning of Hamlet, there's a, a really unimportant, insignificant character called, Fran called Francisco. And Francisco says, "'Tis bitter cold and I am sick at heart." And nobody knows what it means. But really what it means is that it's not just Hamlet who's sick, everybody is sick. Everybody's sick all the time. We have a sense of alienation from ourselves, from other people, from the places in which we live. And Freud is the person who really starts to articulate that with, with what I think is a really startling sort of candor. And when I read Freud, I get a kind of vertigo that I get with very, very particular thinkers, where I feel like I'm reading something about myself that rings true. And Freud is the person who does that for me. So the first thing is we are, we are not known to ourselves. The second is that the unconscious is both terrifying and exhilarating. We have depths. We have such depths that there is no theory up to the task of accounting for the depths that we have. Our interior life is so much more complex than any systematic form of explanation is capable of providing. And that means that our forms of knowledge, whether we come from scientific, philosophical, or literary disciplines, have to have a certain kind of humility. We have to understand that the project of knowledge will never really accomplish or have the measure of what our psychic lives are and can do. And Freud says that for us. The third thing I want to say is that we are infinitely complex human beings. And not just that, if I believe or know that I am infinitely complex, that means that I must also grant that knowledge or extend that knowledge to others. And that seems to be a really important thing we might think about in terms of our social and political life. And I think one of the things Freud says for us is that if we are complex, then we have to understand that other people are complex too. They act in mystifying, bewildering ways. And I also think that Freud then allows us to be forgiving and probing about the ways other people think and behave. Um, the last thing I want to say about Freud is He's not interested in the content of the dream. He's interested in the fact that we dream at all. And psychoanalysis tells, uh, tells us that we're creative, that we're capable of fantasy, that we are replete, we have plenitude, and there is something really creative. There is a kind of resource in the unconscious. And in fact, it's a really unruly sort of resource. And this is the very last thing I want to say, is it's the unconscious that makes us unruly sorts of human beings. We are un governable subjects. The unconscious is attached to all sorts of things. It's attached to lots of words beginning on. The unconscious <laughs> is uncertain, it is unthought, it is ungraspable, it is unknowable, it is uncontainable, it is unexpected, and it comes unbidden. That means it's dangerous. The unconscious could kill us, but at the same time, it makes us. It is the radical revolutionary principle in us. I think it's very interesting that, that Shida said something which is definitely true, that when you read Freud, you feel that you're getting something that's, that's really quite significant. He won the Nobel Prize for literature, for literature. He's a brilliant writer. Some way in which the descriptions he's giving are very satisfying for us, and they're satisfying in a way that tells us, you know, there's a, there's a kind of truth-telling here that we like. But the question is whether what's satisfying is actually genuinely explanatory or not. And I suspect it's not. I mean, I think that some of the uh, attempt to talk about the unconscious is a notion of unconscious that our conscious minds like and can accept because they can make it intelligible. They can talk about the unconscious as bits of us that are inaccessible and then when, when pointed out, when revealed by a good analyst, 
they kind of chime in with what you ordinarily thought. So somebody who has lost in love and they're deeply heartbroken and they're missing very badly the person that was once so much part of their life, they can walk down a busy street and they, they can say, I seem to see her everywhere I go. Now, has the world just become very cruel? Has it just shown a whole lot of lookalikes? No, you can say to the person, you want to see her everywhere you go, and that's the reason why you are trying to find in those faces something that you recognize. Very satisfying, but is it actually the explanation always of what's going on? A more worrying thought is the one that Freud actually cut his teeth on when he looked at people with paralysis. Now, people presented themselves with a paralyzed arm, but the very interesting thing about the arm that was paralyzed was it was a bit of the arm that was described by the arm that showed from a sleeveless dress, and there is no neurological boundary there. Whatever was causing somebody to think their arm was paralyzed was a thought, and not, as it were, something deeply pathologically wrong with the system underlying it. So these are all about thoughts and desires, wants, wishes, hopes, fears, and those are actually continuous with our conscious lives. But I actually don't think now that's going to give us enough. It's not going to be the full story about what's actually driving us. But what we're really worried about is a split, I think. We're worried about a mismatch between what goes on in the conscious mind and what goes on in the unconscious mind. And I think uh, later, in the course of the discussion, I'll tell you about the work of Peter Johansson, about the, the mismatch between what people are actually choosing and preferring and then what they say about what they're choosing and preferring and why. And it's, it's, it's the mismatch that we're interested in. So Freud was right that that's what we care about, but I don't think the explanation's got it quite right. I remember reading um, Freud, my, one of my research areas is uh, paranoia, paranoid beliefs, and I remember reading Freud's account of the Schreber case. Schreber was a German high court judge who had a severe paranoid illness and wrote an autobiography of it in the 19th century, which is quite startling to read in itself. And if you read Freud's account, Freud never met Schreber, but actually he, he studied Schreber's autobiography. And it's a fascinating account because you re go for it step by step by step, and each point looks logical, and he gets to the punchline. And the punchline is that Schreber has repressed homosexual desires for his father. And you go, what? <laughs> it doesn't sort of kind of make any sense. And... Uh, actually, Schreiber almost certainly did, as historians have subsequently shown, have some issues with his family, but probably not of that sort. So it's a bit difficult to know with Freud, when Freud's talking about the unconscious, to what extent it's a just-so story. It's a piece of literature, and as, as Barry has alluded to. But what is clear is obviously a lot of what we do is we're not immediately conscious of it at the time. The most, you know, to take a mundane example, Everybody here in this room will have had the experience of driving to work with something on their mind, something which is worrying them. You get into work and you suddenly realise that you haven't paid attention to anything which has been happening along the journey, but somehow you managed to avoid killing somebody. <laughs> your mind ran on automatic. And a lot of things, including emotional stuff, kind of works like that. So, you know, one of the things we do in cognitive behavior therapy for depression, for example, is we ask people to keep notes of when they feel upset, and then we ask them to think about exactly what's going on at the time. Just to take a, a simple example, a lady who became distressed outside 
the school gates on a kind of regular occasion. And when I first talked to her, she said no, she didn't, had no idea what it was. But when getting her to spend, to actually get in the moment, so to speak, and think about exactly what was happening, what the trigger was hearing other mothers talk about organizing a party for their children and her thinking. Then the, th then the thought comes to the service. The thought is, I'm a bad mother. I don't do that sort of thing for, m for my child. And of course, that's linked to depression. So that's something which is, in some sense, not immediately available to consciousness, but can be made conscious. And there's a whole load of different, there's a lot of evidence now from experimental psychology that we make a lot of judgments very implicitly. Seems to me, in a way, Freud's got the story the wrong way around. So for Freud, the unconscious is the great puzzle of human nature, really. But from a point of view of a sort of biological scientist, it seems to me, or a psychological scientist, it seems to me that unconsciousness is the state that all of nature is in, or most of nature is in. The big problem is how are we ever conscious of anything? And what is <laughs> consciousness when we are <laughs> conscious? The question is how do we know anything consciously at all? Are there thoughts and desires which cannot be consciously accessed? Because we've, we, we've, we've talked about the, there's something going on there. We're just not sure about how much agency it has, whether it's actually driving us or whether it's um, something which the conscious is making up. But are there, do you think, Barry, I'll start with you, thoughts and desires which, which we seriously consciously can't access? There's something down there which is a mystery to us. But I, think, I think if there's something down there we can't access in principle, then it's not a thought or a desire, because a thought or a desire is the sort of thing that can interact okay. with other thoughts, beliefs, desires, and, and can be rationally integrated. So, 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 so we don't keep secrets from ourselves so down there? Well, no, that doesn't follow, okay. because that we keep secrets means that we could in principle recover them, or we could in principle take them into account. Take the Take the mismatch, this, this relates to what uh, Richard was just saying about people's political views. Lovely piece of work by Peter Johansson, where people are asked to fill in a political questionnaire about the Middle East, about the conflict uh, uh, in Iraq and so on, and they're asked to give yes and no answers, and they're asked to, to explain their opinions, and then you close this sheet, and you open it up, and you've actually replaced their answers with completely different answers, and then say, <laughs> Can you tell me why you said this? Why did you say that you thought Israel was not a major antagonist in the Middle East? And they start giving you justifications. Justifications for positions they didn't hold. And, and which justifications do they give? The ones they've heard rehearsed in the media. They start using the kind of familiar everyday sense. That's an interesting mismatch between knowing what actually drove you to make your original choice and actually how you subsequently think about and rationalise it. I suspect a lot of that is going on all the time. Can I ask you a question? Is that, that tendency to, to make justifications, is that the conscious mind doing that, do you yeah. think? Ah. Sure. So he, so he, what do you think? Because he, he, I, I think he's, he's trying to steal your cake. So, so <laughs> yeah, there may be strange me. things going on, but it's the conscious mind doing it. Your question is, are there things that we can't know? And I was saying, you know, for Freud, you know, the, 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 there are certain things. There is the navel of the dream that you will never get to. And it's rather mystical for him. He is a mystic in lots of ways. Um, but also, he's a, an analyst. So he has faith in the analytical process. So he believes that there are ways in which the unconscious makes itself felt. 
world. It is in a dynamic relationship to the ways that we live and speak and interact with, uh, interact with other people. And that means it's not just that analysts who are really attuned to understanding the ways the unconscious presents itself, but one of the places where Freud has found a home is literary criticism and actually all forms of criticism. This is the definition of art, right? That there isn't a reading of the dream, there isn't a final reading of the dream, that, that it is not ultimately absolutely interpretable. And one of the great gifts of Freud is that he says, you know, stuff authorial intention. A film doesn't just what mean what a director thinks it means, or a writer doesn't just mean what they say. There are all sorts of ways in which the things that we write and draw, the music that we make, articulates other things that we have no control over, that we may not even intend to articulate. And that opens up those aesthetic realms in really profound and interesting ways. And Freud is, you know, he is an aesthete ultimately as well, in, in really important but ways. But why does a dream have to have a meaning? I mean, I thought, yeah, it I, thought it well, yeah, but I thought Wittgenstein was quite good on this because he said, it's not, you know, the meaning. When we wake up, what we want to know is how does the dream end? That's what we really want oh, to know. That's, right, right, right. that's what we're really struck by. Not the meaning. And, and I also think this idea that we're always looking for the meaning is like one of those sort of unsmiling German critics who comes out of any film <laughs> and said, what was the meaning of the film? You know, <laughs> I don't care. Sometimes it was about giving you a certain kind of pleasure, yeah. an emotional roller coaster ride. Uh, on, the, on that particular one, you can think about, you know, what is the meaning of meaning? So basically... That's what point, I do for a living. The, the point, yeah. <laughs> but the point that's always struck me is the thing about the dream is, of course, when you wake up in the morning, if you can remember it, you can relate it to things which have happened to you in the day. But that doesn't mean it has some kind of intentionality in the sense of, if that's the right word, of being a kind of message to yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we can go on an archaeological dig and dig up the archaeological dig and say, what is the meaning of these things we're finding here? Well, it means that people lived like this on this happened so long ago. It doesn't mean that this what we find is a story which somebody has written as a message to us. Not just somebody, but the subconscious. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I have a, two answers to Barry. I always have an answer to Barry. So the, the answer to, is that, um, yeah, I've got the answer, but I don't. Um, so it's not <laughs> the, I said this earlier, right? The, the, the really interesting thing for Freud, and we lose this when we get uh, caught up in his, you know, wildly speculative dream interpretations, is not what the dream means. It's the fact that we dream at all, that our unconscious and conscious lives are in a dynamic relationship, that things emerge and they surface in stutters, in linguistic slippages and when you call your teacher mum, all of those stupid, ridiculous things. But isn't that just association? But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well that, yeah but, but that is part of that relationship. But the, the other answer no, is... No, but if you, David said, I want to, to spank the audience, we'd think something was wrong, right? This is <laughs> going <laughs> in a completely different direction <laughs> now. But, uh, but the answer to you know, your German film critic, yeah. who says, what, was, what, 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 happens at the, what happens at the end of the film? What's the... What's not, what, no, what they, want the mean? they want the meaning. They want the meaning of the whole thing. But you also said, what you want to know what happens at the end well, of the dream. I think we do, when we wake up. Because I think Freud knows that, and he cannot bring himself to say it, because what happens at the end of the dream is death, and that's what he talks about in, no. I think, his most important work, which is Civilization, Its Discontents, and for him, it's an unthinkable realisation that it, we repeat things, and we are tra traumatised human beings, and we do, we repeat things, but not because we take pleasure, but because we take pain, and that there is something in us that is awful. There is a, a drive to death. We want, you know, I am obsessed with death, but right, Freud says there's something in us that is dangerous. There's dan something dangerous in being alive. We'll kill each other, and if we don't kill each other, we'll kill ourselves. That's the end of the dream. And he cannot bring himself to say it, and yet he says it. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? 
If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. It seems like we've decided there is something unconscious, but yeah. we're, we're, we're having an argument about whether it's its own thing, which is deeply creative, or whether it's just a filing place for the conscious. I don't think it's a filing place. I mean, if you say it's a filing place, you're actually talking like a storage. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's more dynamic. It's more dynamic. It's more dynamic. I agree. You know, we sure. have, uh, we're, our, our behaviour is governed by complex associative processes. You know, it... Simple conditioning is simple in name only. If you look at, w at, at the things which govern animal behavior, they're incredibly complicated, the way that one association leads to another and you get the kind of these complex patterns of, of behavior. And all that has to be on automatic. It has to be on automatic because, well, you know, we wouldn't be able to manage it otherwise. Try thinking about how to walk across the floor and see what happens. You'll fall over. But, you know, on top of it, we have, because we're human beings, we have this language ability we have the, to spin these narratives and to talk about and sometimes that's fruitful because we can actually use the stories we tell ourselves as guides to our own action so we can formulate complicated goals and things which yeah. non-human species but can so but that's a different idea than a story than that, you're saying that it's not just a story that the conscious mind spins for itself but that it has actual agency this subconscious that it it's its own creature yeah so oh, it, it, yeah. can we explore that in the if that's true, then what's its be. plan? Well, do we have full control over it? No. Um, and if not, does it matter? Whoa, 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 when, whoa steady. Sorry. When you say, do we have full control <laughs> over well, it? Well, exactly. I are we just the bit in the conscious, or is it all of us? Now, one thing is to what, embrace you want me to all of that? it. I don't yeah. know. Go, go well, on. all right. Are I we mean, the Ronald Reagans of our own minds? <laughs> <laughs> but then, but what I you're saying is that actually, all down there, in the bowels of the machine, underneath Ronald Reagan, there's somebody else. I think that's his. Um, his final revelation in Civilization's Discontents, what he cannot, he, he starts all these sentences where he says, I cannot allow myself to think things could be so, but it is so. And he's writing at the end of that First World War, he's watching Ge the German nation transform, his daughter's died, um, and he's having this terrible realization that maybe even an analysis, he says, is interminable. There is no answer, you're never just cured, because there is something in us there is something in us that will drive us to d destroy each other. Is it always negative? Or is there, is, are there things in no. the subconscious no, which, no, no, which no. are no, creative? No, I don't think that is. Yes, I mean, I, I, I completely think that I'm too. I'm thinking that, of intuition that, or... That it is a dynamic yeah. relationship and that, that the unconscious does not just sit there. It, it right. is constantly part of... And we're, we're battling okay, with that. Okay, then passing it over to you then, then it's... it's there could be a good side to this, that it's, it's that those intuitions or the, the thoughts that you go and it just yeah. came to you, which you could never have yeah. explained, it just leaps beyond. That would suggest that the subconscious is doing its own thinking, is a separate well, thing from I you You know, I guess, you know, we're talking about the subconscious, well, but yes. okay. there are yeah. associative processes which can be extraordinarily creative. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, one of the interesting things is that if you look at people with psychosis, which is kind of my area, is that 
very often the chains of associations don't actually kind of, they're not as constrained or kind of, you know, tamed, if I put it like that, as by the, by perhaps by the explicit mental processes. Is it as just well. associations but that makes it sound quite... But, you know, the interesting thing is, is that actually they are more creative, you know, yeah. as, as, a f as far as we can tell. I mean, there's research which shows that, 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 that mental illness is associated with creativity. If you look at... Uh, people with bipolar dis disorder diagnosis, they are exceptionally creative as a general rule. And if you look at people with schizophrenia diagnosis, well, when they're ill, they're not. But when they're not, then they are. So it's, it's kind of... But I don't think you need to think of some kind of process with agency. If it's like agency, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're just saying it's some sort of machine well, so, that associates. So, so, but you're saying it's, it's, it's a about putting so together well, ideas in ways which... The, on, the, on the one hand, there is that civilization, it's discontents Freud that says there's death, but there's the other part of the unconscious that he thinks is dynamic. And it, the, the implications of that dynamic unconscious is that um, we are in a, a process of self-production, that we are not in stasis, that we are constantly in dialogue with things that are happening or emerging. And so um, we're, we're subjects in turmoil, but we're also subjects that are engaged with ourselves constantly. And for me, that can be radical and revolutionary. In, I mean, I, I, I wrote and talked a lot about psychoanalysis during kind of the Arab Spring and Middle Eastern psychoanalysts were talking about what does it mean for there to be this upsurge of, of action, of feeling? Where does that, something like that come from? And there is something anti-authoritarian in the unconscious, right? That it is uncontainable and it is unbidden and that can be radical. It can so be without change. I would actually say the evidence is probably the opposite. <laughs> uh, just as, as kind of, you know, it seems to be, if, if you look at kind of research on political psychology, it seems that Conservatism is the default option, actually, and uh, so, and so for that reason, if you get more drunk, you get more conservative. Apparently, if you, so somebody, if the experiment <laughs> yeah. has been done. You hang out uh, outside a pub and offer people uh, a breathalyzer in, you know, to, get, to give them their blood alcohol level in exchange for their political views. You find that the higher the alcohol level, the, the more conservative they are. And the reason is because actually, the sort of Basic default that. option is to is all about self-preservation and not about and about not taking risks and that's at the conservative end and it's it's that's the default option. Look, I was going to ask Barry what, what what Richard said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But would we would we lose something? It's, it's easy to sort of take issue with the subconscious if it's all these dark repressed things and. But if, if there's this sort of revolutionary, progressive, uncontrolled, the thing which allows you to leap beyond your present we thinking, need, is we that need, a good yeah. thing? Look, we need much more than, than we can get at by just describing aspects of the conscious mind to explain how we as whole beings behave, what motivates us, what we do, how we learn, what we create. That's for sure. But I'm worried that what the Freudian talks about with that restless struggle, the need for meaning, is a desire for explanations that will ultimately satisfy when some of the times you have to tell people there's no explanation and you have to live with it. For example, when people have um, seizures with epilepsy, with, with, with grand mal, before they have the epileptic seizure, they have a feeling of luminal revelation, they have a feeling of a very heightened state of awareness as if something is going to be suddenly revealed to them. But you have to tell them that's because of a brainstorm. That's, you're going to now mm. have a massive hyperactivation and then seizure. There's no explanation of the sort you're looking for. And sometimes, you know, as Wittgenstein said, when the person has become heartbroken and is lost in love, what will help them? An explanation? Question mark? And the answer is no. Just got to deal with it. 
I just don't follow that line of reasoning. When you seek meaning, you generate more meaning, and meaning is unsatisfactory. That's but you what's want so hungry. And sati- you're wanting something to satisfy you, and I think... But that's why analysis is interminable, but, but because you well, can it, never well, be exactly, satisfied. Exactly, and that's wrong, and that's why people make too much money from it. But instead, you can terminate it by saying sometimes, just as in the case of epilepsy, okay. There's no meaning there to be had, even though it feels as though there is and I, you want it. I agree with one sentiment, which is that I think we live in a culture where we seek um, uh, our measures of success, our happiness and money and accomplishment. And actually, I think one of the things that Freud does for us, and psychoanalysis does for us, is to say that uh, we are failing creatures and that we have to cope with our failure and that, and that all we have is our attempts at self-understanding, generative attempts at self-understanding. And it's not, we're talking about ourselves in isolation here, but what's the psychoanalysis' real gift is bestowing the complexity that you understand of yourself to the others that you engage with. Right. Mm. I think that's what Freud does for us. Can I ask you, well, all is really a question. You're d- defending this notion that, the, that Freud had dis- he'd, he'd discovered this, this thing in us. Could it be, taking your view, that, that we're the kind of creatures that when we tell ourselves a story, we can actually make ourselves that way? So if we tell ourselves a Freudian story, does it become who we are? I mean, uh, can we be... Th- not always. Not that's a bit wriggly. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean, not always? Do you want a simple theory for a complex world? Of course. Yeah, of course not. I mean, just, just, go, back to the, just go back to the stuff that I, I talked about with uh, Peter Johansson's work, right? So you're making choices, and then you're giving an explanation of why you did it. It doesn't necessarily mean that the next time when, when time has elapsed, you'll now follow the explanation, the right. justification. You can thank goodness. Mm. But it does show you that there is a bit of a mismatch. So, so the, the chance does it where reprogram Cognitive behavioral therapy mm. has been about the best attempt to reprogram some of that internal goings on. But, you know, I think, I think it's still limited. We tell ourselves stel- stories about what we're really like and what we're about, which don't fit. And in the face of all the evidence, we persist in them. And that's where we get to be quite some unhappy, I think. Some of those stories are, you know, there are some stories which work better than other yeah. stories, I yeah. suppose, is the answer. And, and is uh, the Freudian story a good one? Well, one. it doesn't seem to be a good one if you actually want to help people with severe mental illness. That's clear. It doesn't help in that way. Um, you need, you know, there are other approaches which seem to be more effective. Thanks Ladies so. and gentlemen, <laughs> would you please join me in thanking our three speakers? We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is the mind like an iceberg, only a portion of which we can see? Or is a cigar just a cigar? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. <laughs>